Amen. Well, good morning, everybody. It is good to see you all this morning, and um, thank you to our worship team. That was awesome today. Happy birthday, Bailey. Uh, we're so grateful for you, Bailey. We really are. And um, happy birthday to you. And yeah, what a great day. What a great day. They had a sign over there that said, happy birthday, Bailey. Hey, Matt and Jackie, congratulations. These two are engaged to be married. You know how I found out? I look on uh, Instagram like every maybe couple of days. I'm like, I just want to look at Instagram. And I thought, is that wrong to look at Instagram? You know, so I just looked at Instagram and I saw you propose to her. Good move, dude. Good move. Yeah. You guys are awesome. And Matt, you scored. Jackie's rad. You're, you, you did a good job. And I wanted to um, welcome somebody very special to their first service today. Um, Coda Boone Hunter back there is, yeah, he's with his dad right now, but I saw him earlier. So there he is. Coda's first Sunday. <laughs> Coda's part of our organic church growth model. So yeah, we're, <laughs> we're grateful. Man, um, I can't wait to open up John chapter 1 in the remainder of the chapter. And if you're kind of strategic and you're doing the math, um, man, how long is it going to take us through to get through the Gospel of John if it took like three weeks to get through the first 10 or so verses, or 19 verses? Um, but hopefully you're in for the ride. And um, I think the Word of God, especially the richness of the Word of God, is not something to rush. And so um, we're not in it for the mileage, but um, we definitely want to take the time in each part. And I'm grateful for the way that the book of John has structure to it so we can kind of follow what's going on. And we're about to this week, um, God willing, we'll kind of get through that prologue section and into um, next week into the book of signs where we begin to see some of the things that Jesus did. But um, this week as I was studying it, and you're going to see in just a moment, and I'm going to read some of it, but you're going to see a little bit more about John the Baptist, um, the wild man who ate wild honey and locusts and wore camel hair gowns and whatnot, a gown? I don't think it was a gown, but uh, whatever he wore. I always say this, but to me, John wore like a really cool kilt, you know, he had a kilt. And dreadlocks. I always picture him that way. I don't know. I don't have any biblical backing for that. But he had a lot of hair. And I'm sure it wasn't washed. And it was matted. And I just feel like he was a wild man. But anyways, we're going to learn more about him in reality, not in my imagination. Um, but we're also going to hear some about, um, about the, the calling of the early disciples. And just as I was thinking about it, actually as I was thinking about this in worship, um, I'm, I'm I'm thinking about the, just the pure simplicity of the Gospel of John. It's so deep, but um, you're faced with some pretty compelling arguments about who Jesus is, and you've got to do something about it. The reader has to look at that and say, what do I do with this stuff? And that's why this book throughout um, history has been known as a book of, of, of evangelistic purposes. So someone who's searching out God, and maybe that's you today, that you're curious about him, or you want to know more about Jesus, like people have read this book, and it's become the very thing that they've responded to the words of Jesus and started to follow him. And today you're going to hear the first recorded words of Jesus as according to John's gospel. But all that to say, um, I've used this analogy before, so forgive me if it's repetitious to you, but um, are you familiar with the concept of bundling? 
Does that annoy you as much as it does me? Like if you're just trying to get internet, right? All you want is you just want internet at your house. And you, you call up to get your high-speed internet and, you know, whatever. And it's like, yes, but today not only do you get internet, but you also get cable. And you also get a free oil change at Jiffy. And you also get, and it just goes on and on. You're like, no, I just wanted, I just wanted internet, right? And then you end up with all kinds of other stuff. And, and then you're, you're on the phone already, and they just really, really wear you down to the point where you're just like, just give me everything. Here, here's my social security card. Here's my, here's my, no, just But you're just exhausted by the time because you just want your internet. But now you got all this stuff, right? And I think that that concept of bundling has really come into our faith world. Like, I think it's come in, if I think back about my Christian life, that there's a lot of stuff that got bundled in that, that when we come to the Gospel of John, man, you just, you get Jesus and you get the simplicity of what it means to believe and the result of belief and following. But, but along the way... Um, we can collect a lot of baggage of things that were promised on top of it. And maybe even some of the things that we've collected along the way are, are not so much biblical as they are cultural. And, and some of the things that you're going to see today, um, I think Jesus speaks directly into, or at least the tone that I read it in, um, and I'll let you be the interpreter, hopefully the Holy Spirit in you. But, but I think we have this um, pace and this culture of results and instant and I'm going to call you out and you're going to do it. Do you follow what I'm saying? And sometimes we plug that into how we see Jesus and, and how we really view the character and nature of God. I was sharing this in a staff meeting that sometimes I hear um, people re- reflecting on something that God said to them in prayer or whatever else. And the way that they talk about the way that God talks to them doesn't sound like God to me sometimes. It sounds more like their angry dad or their boss who did something stupid or maybe whatever else. Like it just takes on a tone. Does anybody relate with this stuff at all? And so my hope today and my hope through the study of the Gospel of John is that we can unbundle. That you can uh, maybe have a healthy way of letting some stuff go. Um, There's other terminology for this. A lot of people may be familiar with the word deconstruction. What deconstruction is what often you hear of um, not just young people, but all kinds of, um, you hit a point in your life where you're like, this stuff's crazy. I don't know what I believe and what I don't believe. And the the danger of deconstruction is you take it all apart. And then if you're not careful, you don't put it all back together and you're worse than when you even started. But you feel really good because you took it all apart. So my goal is not to take it all apart today. My goal and my, my belief that through the study of the Gospel of John isn't so that, you know, we can be like, whoa, you know, let's not believe that anymore. No. The Gospel of John repeats the word over and over. I said 71 times. Another person, commentator, said in its, all of its forms like 100 times that the word belief is in the Gospel of John. There's something that we've, we've got to receive from the message of the Gospel of John that we are called to believe And so it's not a call to deconstruct and unbelief, but it's a call to unbundle and get rid of some of the stuff that doesn't belong there in the first place. So are you up for that? I am too. So let's go for it. What we learned about Jesus last week and just its simplicity, um, I have a slide here of review. Um, John, John 1 just masterfully leads us through our vision of who Jesus is, not who we want him to be or who we hope that he is, but John gives some really... Um, strong words and clear ideas that are the truth of who he is, that Jesus existed from the beginning with God, that Jesus is God, 
that all things are made through Jesus, that he became flesh, that he dwells with us, that he is the true light. And I love this last one. Uh, I've been thinking about it all week, that he is full of grace and truth. Um, that Jesus is perfect in all of his ways and we know it, but he, that last statement is in reference to Moses' law that was full of truth. We gave the analogy that the law is great for showing us what we're doing wrong. We know the standard because we know the law. But Jesus not only shows us the things that need to change, but he gives us the power to change. That Jesus not only shows us where we have violated God's law, but he, he gives to us forgiveness so that we can walk in newness of life and relationship with God and have restoration. So, Jesus, full of grace and truth. Um, I thought why this is important for us, and, and maybe uh, there's a temptation for me to go, yeah, this is all so basic. I don't want to just give basic, because I want to give the meat of the word. No, I'm just kidding. No, but, but there, there's, there's a temptation towards, yeah, yeah, I know these things, but maybe that's true, but John seemed to go through to great lengths to record it, and when we study it, it, it must need to be something really deeply embedded in our minds so that we don't go astray. And I said, I showed you last week, and hopefully you remember, but how in Jesus' day and, and the days following his resurrection, what would be known as the early church, there were false heresies. And the very, one of the, the strongest first ones was Gnosticism that taught that Jesus was God but not man. And then on and on into other heresies that, that, that changed um, who, in the, in the, the attempt to change in the minds of people who Jesus is. And that filters into today. Every major world religion has a view about Jesus because you have to do something with him. He's a historical figure. You know that he walked the earth. You know that he isn't like a made up fairy tale. And so you have to do something with these claims. And so what various religions have done, <clears throat> excuse me, from, from, um, from thinking that Jesus was a God, not the God, from saying that Jesus was the devil's brother, from saying that Jesus was a great man, from saying that Jesus was a, an intelligent teacher, that he was a peaceful person, that these things that are, are not all of them, but some true about an aspect of his character, but missing what the Bible says and who he declares that he is. And so the aim of all of this and our unbundling is to maybe get rid of some of these other views and just center into the simple truths of who he says he is. And so we, we head into John chapter 1, verse 19. I'm going to read it for you, and then we'll um, hopefully break it open a bit. Here's what it says in, in John chapter 1, verse 19. And this is the testimony of John. It's an important word. And that important word is testimony, and, and you're going to see it in other forms too. Repeated quite often in this gospel is witness, right? This is the testimony of John. And when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? This is a curious sentence. It says, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. When you read the Bible, sometimes you read it and then you just stop. Wait, what is that? That's a different kind of sentence, right? And you have to rewind a little bit. Does that not, does anyone talk like that? He confessed and did not deny, but he confessed. I am not the Christ. I have no idea what it means, so let's move on. I'm just kidding. No, I'm just kidding. No, I think if you, if you take a moment and you look at the, you look at the moment, 
Okay, we oftentimes are really harsh with our, what we think about religious leaders, and Jesus was harsh with them at times as well, but, but these are um, the guardians of the faith. These are um, the, the, those that are entrusted with making sure that, that this Judaism stays pure and, and upholds God's law, and so they send someone to John the Baptist to ask him who he is. And it's not like a just, hey man, who are you? It's an official interrogation type of thing. It could be a moment that the average person would be pretty nervous about it. It could be a moment where when somebody, there could be implications to how you answer. It could have, you know, uh, results in your life that could be negative. And so when you're, when you're asked these questions, who are you? Um, he basically, in, the, in the, the tone of that sentence, it's a way of saying, John answered just straightforward truth. He didn't dance around it. He didn't dodge the question. John answered a straightforward thing. And what's interesting about the answer to who, I, who are you, he says who he's not. I am not the Christ. Let's just get to the point, right? And then he goes on in verse 21. And they asked him, what then? Who are you? Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? Um, the prophet is likely in reference to Deuteronomy chapter 18, where there is a, a prophecy that, that a, a prophet will come after Moses. So these are, these are the grid by which the religious leaders, Jewish people, are trying to figure it out. They're just taking what they, what they know could possibly be and asking, are you this person? And he answers, no, I'm not the prophet. Verse 22 says, and they said, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. And what do you say about yourself? And he said, I'm a voice, I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. He quotes Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3. He basically, in this dialogue, in this question answer time, he's very clear of who he's not. He's very clear that he would rather spend time talking about who Jesus is. In just a moment, you'll see that. But what he says is he leaves them with um, kind of a dangerous response. They have to do something with him even. He says, I'm not Elijah, and I'm not Jeremiah, but I'm like them. I'm like them. I'm like the one who is a voice crying out in the wilderness, make straight the path of the Lord. John was a, um, a, an interesting person, um, but he's a great case study to take pause and look at for a moment. Because if you think about John the Baptist, you could have that picture that I gave in my imagination about who he is. But he's also a historic figure that we know early on um, that he was born a miraculous birth. He wasn't born of a virgin birth like Jesus through Mary, but that, that his parents were way too old to be able to have kids. Um, you know that story. And there's something of like stuff happening in the womb when, when John the Baptist is near Jesus, there's like leaping and, you know, stuff that's going on. It's supernatural. It's similar to what you read about in, in Jeremiah, who Jeremiah was one who had this anointing from the Holy Spirit, even in the womb. You can look there if you want with me in, in Jeremiah chapter one and in, in verse four, we'll put it up on the screen. It says, now the word of the Lord came to me saying, and this is God speaking to Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you and I appointed you a prophet to the nations. 
what happens inside of that womb? You know, the, the wonder of a God who knows your days, the, a, a God who, who knows the beginning from the end, but, but also who entrusts and, and deposits gifts and talents and abilities in the breath of the Holy Spirit. It's actually really beautiful. But when it speaks of John the Baptist, it makes it even, even more clear. Um, I know we're doing a little bit of, of Bible roulette today, but if you go uh, Luke chapter 1 and verse 14... This is, this is speaking about John and how special he was and unique he was, much like the prophet Jeremiah. It says, in, in speaking to his parents, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be, a, he will be great before the Lord. And then it speaks of this thing that sounds a lot like a Nazarite vow, um, this would be something John would have to willfully take, but there's something unique about how he responds to the gift of God in him, that he must not drink wine or strong drink. And listen to this. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he goes on and, and speaks beautifully about who this John the Baptist is. So there's a uniqueness. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. There's something about how he stewards the gift of God in him. And for him, that, that stewardship of the gift is, hey, it can't be under the influence of, of, of alcohol. It can't be, there's no wine for you. There's no strong drink. It's interesting if you, I mean, this is such a, a relevant topic because some have the, the freedom to have a glass of wine while another would not have that same freedom. And the Bible speaks to it. And it, it, it's something that holds you in this area of, of, of tension sometimes. Because here you have John, who's not allowed to have uh, wine or any strong drink. And you have Jesus, who's accused of being like a partier because he, he drinks wine. And his first miracle that you're about to hear in the next week or two is that he turns water into wine. The, the point of all this gets to the point of the unbundling stuff. That... that that this is part of, of early on seeing that the, the, the response for each individual to the relationship with God, I'm not talking about relativistic morality. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about in these areas of freedoms, that there is one who it is 100% a sin to have that glass of wine. There's another who has a freedom to have that glass of wine. And, and so wrestling and working that stuff out is part of the unbundling process to be able to stand firm in what God's called you and your conviction and not judgmental towards the other on either side. The one who has the freedom can't be like, man, you're so legalistic, dude. Lighten up and have a glass of wine. The one who's free to have a glass of wine can't look to, uh, or the, the one who's, who's not drinking wine can't go, you're a drunkard, you know, like they accuse Jesus of. And so this is a very real and relevant area that requires relationship, discernment, and the leading of the Holy Spirit. We see it right here in the Gospel of John. Um, John was influential. There was something of this power of the Holy Spirit that was in him from birth, that when he um, spoke the things that he spoke, people listened to it and they responded, so much so that there was a phenomenon of baptism that was happening. Like thousands of people were being baptized in the Jordan River for repentance of sin. I just kicked my water just for the record. Um, I always feel like you should just say whatever happens. Spit comes out of your mouth, you should say it. You know, whatever. Um, John is proclaiming, make straight the way. He's speaking repentance. He's telling people, man, you've, you've got to follow the laws of God. You have to, you have to repent. 
And the response of the people was like, it gripped them because God was on it, right? And so they wanted to repent. And part of their repentance was this washing of the, in, in water, this immersion in water called baptism. And, and sometimes we think that baptism started at Pirate's Cove in, in Corona del Mar during the Jesus Revolution. And there's a film that reinforces that theology. And beautiful things, man, I love what's happening there. It's like baptism fest. Like every, I mean, it's just, you, you can see thousands of people being baptized there. That's, that is literally holy ground when you go there. You know, it's just like you can, you just know it's something special. But baptism didn't start from the Christians. Baptism started in Judaism. Baptism, um, and it's a little bit mysterious because you don't read about in the Bible the origins of baptism. It just shows up. Much like the idea of the synagogue. Are you familiar with the synagogue? You, you read about the, the beginnings of the temple, right? How, you know we, we studied Exodus. We know that you went to the temple. We just got done with the Psalms of Ascent. That was about the ascent to Jerusalem where you go to make your sacrifices. You receive atonement. You worship. You have fellowship and community. That was the temple. But the, the Jewish people were held in captivity in Babylon for 70 years, far away from their temple. And the further away, many got further away from the truths that they had been taught and and decided to follow that was part of their culture and their their religious beliefs. They got further away. Others longed more to want to worship, but they had no temple to go to. And so houses of worship, that's what a synagogue means. The houses of worship began to, to spring up. And so over time... You see that wherever there are Jewish people, there are also synagogues. It's much like what we have here, right? We come to this sanctuary. It's a devoted place for worship, for the teaching of God's word, for prayer. The synagogue was the same thing. And so you have these like concepts that just interesting to know a little bit about as you read it in the Bible, what it is and where it came from. But, but the point is about baptisms, not, um, that's okay. You can answer your phone. It's a, I, I, I know her. That's why I could tease her. It's fine. Um, <laughs> there's a little button called silent. Okay. Just I'm just kidding. I'm just teasing. I'm just teasing. We've all done it. I've done it. I've had the worst possible times when my phone rings. That's why I, I tease. Because I love. Okay. So, so um, baptism, when, when you wanted to, uh, as, as Judaism, Judaism was never intended to be its own thing, just its own cultural people, but it was always supposed to be hope to the nations. That's, you know, you read about Jonah, right? He went out to Gentile people and pagans at that. But when you, des- when you wanted to convert to Judaism, there were three things that needed to happen. One, you needed to agree to the, um, to the, the laws that you were going to follow. You had to get a scribe to teach it to you so you knew what you were agreeing to because there was a lot to it. Number two, if you were male, you had to be circumcised, which could produce a problem depending upon your age. But, but you know, you had to be circumcised. And number three... And you needed a rabbi to do it. And number three, uh, you needed to be baptized. You needed to be immersed in water. It was a sign of, of repentance. And so this is what was happening. This wasn't like Calvary Chapel, um, I profess Christ. This was John the Baptist baptizing thousands of people who were like, wow, I'm a filthy sinner and I need to be cleansed of my sin. And this is my Jewish response to cleansing. And, and so this is all important because how does John steward all of that? What I mean is John becomes kind of, for me, a case study in influence. John was super influential. 
He was so influential that religious leaders sent these guys to interrogate him. And what I love about John is that John was all about Jesus. He was all about Jesus. You never hear John saying, well, my people uh, were baptized over here. We had, you know, over 1,500 today. And if you check me out on social media, you can get some of my merch and, and whatever else. I'm all about him. All about all glory. All glory to God. And there's such a bizarre celebrity that happens among those that gain influence and power. And it's something to be aware of, okay? This is not me throwing rocks. It's hopefully me seeing a mirror and you as well. This is God's word that helps keep us grounded so that we realize when, when asked, who are you? You don't come with what your culture has taught you to come with. Your culture has taught you to come with your accomplishments, how effective you are, how busy you are, how awesome you are, how humble you are about all the things that you just said you are. (laughs) And there's ways to do it, and you see it happening, and you hear yourself doing it sometimes. You feel awkward. You see others do it, and you're like, oh, cool, you know? It's weird. It's not Jesus. It's not the kingdom. It's just something different. It's culture. And, and so as I was reading this today, it was just reinforced it to me again that this question for us this morning is a really important one. Who are you? Who are you? That could be a philosophical question that, that hits you to the core. It could be a question that annoys you. That's like, come on, man, just give me, give me the word. Don't give me psychobabble. You know? But, but the question is a very important question that just as John was asked it, who are you? I felt... God was asking me that question. And then as I was wrestling through that some, I felt God asking us that question. Who are we? John gives us more insight as he unpacks who he is. Um, Who he is is a whole lot about who Jesus is. And um, so let's look at at John 1, um, starting in, uh, sorry, 16. Jump down. Um, excuse me, 24. I got all excited about my point that I lost my place. So in verse 24, um, those that had been sent from the Pharisees say, they ask him, um, why are you baptizing if you're neither the Christ, Elijah, or the prophet? And John answers them, I baptize with water, right? This is, this is what we've done. This is our tradition." This is part of coming to faith and deciding to follow God. I baptize with water, but among you stands one that you do not know. And, and even um, and one who comes after me, whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. And these things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Um, sorry, I'm looking for... Okay, perfect. Yeah, and, and so um, why are you baptizing and what are you doing? And John, as I've already said, he, he takes the attention off of his results, his influence, and he puts it back onto Jesus. And he begins to paint the picture of one that they don't yet know, which interestingly, um, he says of himself, he didn't even know him, although it was his cousin. And I, that's the point I want to get at now. So John makes this bold proclamation. 
Um, we're going to come back to that question of who you are. So maybe if you're a note taker, jot that down because you don't get off the hook that easy. Um, we got to sit in that a little bit. But in, in, answering, in John answering the question, um, John seemed to know his mission, which was really important. And his mission was not in line with what his, his dream was. I love Pastor Scott's um, challenge to us today to, to submit and surrender our hopes and our dreams. Um, that's a very safe thing to do, by the way, because we want our dreams and desires to match his because that's what we were created for. And when, when our dreams overtake his for our life, then we're walking in our own will. And that's always messed up. That always leads to something of heartache that we don't want in our lives. And so John wasn't following his dreams. John was following God's will for his life. And he seemed to know his mission and purpose clearly he knew who he was and what he was about, and that's evidenced even more as we look deeper. If you look at, at now um, verse 29, he says, the next day Jesus was, was coming um, toward him, and he said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I don't know what John's voice was like, but I got to imagine the one who cries out in the wilderness was like a booming voice. And that exclamation point at the end of that wasn't as calmly as I just said it. It was like a behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I don't think he was angry when he said it. I don't think he was like, like passionate like we would think passionate. I, I kind of picture um, big crazy John with like a smile on his face. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It was his proclamation. He was, and he was just saying, stop and look, that's him. What's interesting about that is, is if John had issues with his own insecurities and his own leadership and desiring influence and realizing, oh my gosh, if Jesus comes on the scene, my thousands will dwindle and his will be greater. He's like super public with it. Hey, everybody, look, stop what you're doing. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. What's, there's multiple things that are happening, but one is John is giving witness to who, remember those seven things that I showed you earlier? John is giving eyewitness account to that. John, the gospel writer, has written it. Now he's showing historical proof that here's a real guy who said these things about this one who claims to be those seven things and so much more. And so John is saying, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It was a proclamation. It was prophetic because this guy, as it said in Luke, operated under the spirit and the power of Elijah. He was like those prophets. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. How many of you have heard of a revivalist preacher, Charles Spurgeon? I don't know if this is true, but I believe it is because somebody reputable said it said that Charles Spurgeon, who had preached to the masses, and there were so many miracles and conversions that took place as he spoke truth, the, the hearts of people were warmed and they, they decided to follow Jesus. But in those days, there weren't um, really nice sound systems like we have. There, there were um, large auditoriums that were designed for, um, for the audience to be able to hear, but you had to get a feel for the room. Right? That meant that you had to know, where do I stand? And if I stand here, am I going to get an echo back? And if I stand here, is it going to project out the right way? There are, there are points that were architecturally designed for amplification. 
So Charles Spurgeon arrives in this place, and it's a dark auditorium. And wherever Spurgeon spoke, there was room for lots of people because people showed up. And so he, he, much like we would do here, you know, as you're getting ready to start and, you know, no one's around or maybe a handful of people, you, Joanna's back there, you're like, uh, check, check, you know, you maybe recite um, something silly or you read scripture or whatever else. Charles Spurgeon shows up by himself, walks on the stage and just says three times, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he comes over here and he tries this spot, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Goes over another and he's kind of taking it all in, gets to the middle. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. All right, packs up his stuff and, and walks out. What he doesn't know is in the dark auditorium, a man is there um, doing some work uh, far in the back, uh, fixing a chair or something like that as the story goes. And the result of that proclamation the man gives testimony that he made a decision to follow Christ. Something happened in him when he heard the proclamation, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away this. There's power in words, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Isn't that crazy? I thought he'd be way more impressed with that. I even built it up. I even like did the... It'll hit you later. But that's awesome. It's awesome. John, in the same way, look, it's the Lamb of God. And it goes on. It says, I myself, this is the interesting part, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that we might be revealed to Israel. I, John, bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And verse 34 says, And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. John's making a historical, uh, on-the-record declaration. And why is that important? Because he's a super credible witness. He's a credible witness because we know that John and Jesus were cousins. John and Jesus were cousins. We can only imagine what feasts look like. We can only imagine what gatherings look like, where, you know, John and Jesus were building tree houses, or they were just running around doing things that little boys do. And through the years, they know each other. They know who one another is. But just like the disciples, just like some of you, you know about Jesus, but there's something that happens when you know him. I didn't know. Now I know. So what John is saying here is not that I don't even, I've never even met this guy. Even more so it's credible because he's like, I really know this guy. He's my cousin. And I've been with him a ton. And I, I, we hung out. But I didn't see what was reality about him until I saw the spirit descending upon him like a dove. And I heard those words, this is my son whom I love and I'm well pleased. Isn't that phenomenal? The hope is this, that, that and, and I'll, I'll say it again, that there are some who maybe know about Jesus. They know the historical figure. They know the man of peace. They know the man that they want him to be. Maybe uncomfortable with some of the claims that he makes. Maybe uncomfortable with how exclusive Jesus says things about salvation. Maybe that doesn't fit the cultural norm. But something happens when you get to know him 
that the lights turn on and you're like, I didn't know him, but now I know him. I didn't see him, but now I see him. <clears throat> Excuse me, I need to get a drink of water that I kicked over earlier. So John is an emphatic witness that this is the Son of God. <clears throat> we have just a little bit more time, and I, I, I want to get through this stuff, not in a way of rushing, but I, I want to get to the end because I think it's so wonderful. And it brings us back to that question, who am I? And so buckle up for that. But in verse 35, the next day, John was standing with his two disciples. And many scholars would, one is mentioned here, um, which is Peter's brother, Andrew. Uh, but another, many scholars believe that it was John the Apostle, the writer of the, this gospel. So John the Apostle first being a, it can get a little def- confusing because you have lots of Johns here, but John the Apostle is believed to have been first the disciple of John the Baptist and later becomes the disciple of Jesus, the one that Jesus loved, Jesus' favorite. John one thirty five. it says, the next day John was standing with his two disciples. This is John the Baptist. Verse 36 says, he looked at Jesus and walked by, as he walked by, behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Let's stop there for a minute. It doesn't say that John goes, hey, wait a minute, where are you guys going? I'll tell you all about him. I'll teach you about him. You don't have to go follow him, not just yet. You're my boys. The two that followed John see the Lamb of God, and they follow Jesus. There's something to, to discern about John's character that I hope is in us as followers of Jesus. I hope it's in you if you're a leader in any capacity, which if you're a follower of Jesus, you are. There's a little pet peeve that I have, and I'll just go out on a limb and maybe have a rant for a moment. There's a pet peeve of like possessive language when it, when it deals with ministry or people. Okay, I get it. I get it. It's an embracing of a calling. It's an embracing of leadership. But when somebody says, you know, my church, and it's not you talking about the church you attend, it's the pastor saying, well, my church boasts X amount of numbers, or well, or it could be said, like, not my people, because my leaders do this for me. It's, a, it's common terminology that is in the business world, and it's unfortunately in the church world that I think Again, I can't judge the heart, and I get that there's moments where you own leadership and you say those things as a strong leader, but I think it's something that needs to be looked at, that we don't own people. This is not my church. You are not my people. I love you. I'm grateful that I get the privilege of pastoring you. Honestly, I think so many times I think, oh, I meant to say it this week. You know, I, I walk away, I meant to say it this week. Like, how much is a privilege for me? Literally, like, sometimes I'm studying God's word thinking, I, I, I can't wait to bring this. And, and because you've entrusted, you've trusted me, I, I get the privilege of studying and doing my best to break it open for you. That's a privilege. But you're not mine. You belong to the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This church, it's awesome. Like, this is awesome because God is awesome. This is a wonderful gathering because you're the bride of Christ. You belong to him. You're his, his, collectively, you're God's idea. You're the hope for, for the world. You're the family of God. 
That's why when people come in and they're like, man, it just felt weird. Like I came in and I just like, I felt like I was at home and I felt like everybody loved me. And I could, could people really be this kind? Usually not. Usually not. Right? Because our, in our humanity, we're not hardwired for kindness. We're not hardwired for patience. We're not hardwired for love and charity and these things. But because of the Lamb of God who takes away and is in the process of taking away the sins of the world and the sins of your world and my world, you're beautiful. But you belong to him. This belongs to him. And John captured that so well in this. And never once does he say, wait, 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 you guys aren't ready. You're not ready for him. Jesus is hardcore. Okay? You know, you won't follow Jesus. He's hardcore. Yeah, I, I need to train you guys a little more. You got some stuff you're going to need to memorize. I don't know about your quiet times, man. You guys aren't up at 5 a.m. I've been telling you guys, get up at 5. Like, you've been studying Greek? I don't think so. <laughs> right? Like, he does none of that. He doesn't record. He just, the two disciples see him and they follow Jesus. My imagination, 100% here, so don't quote me, but I kind of see the wild John the Baptist just going, yeah guys got it right. Open-handed in your parenting, in your business, in your friendships, control kills, produces insecurity. It makes insecure people around you, makes you more insecure. Open-handedness, right? Your family belongs to God. Your wife belongs to God. Your husband belongs to God. Your children belong to God. You are grateful stewards in their lives to be able to go, hey, look, the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God. He takes away the sins of the world. Beautiful. God help us in that. Hmm. So he goes on and, and, um, and he, you read in, in verse 38, Jesus turned and and saw them and following them said, what are you seeking? What are you seeking? These are John's. Now, this doesn't mean it's the first words Jesus said publicly at all. It just means in John's spiritual gospel, as we learned, John uses this as the first red letters. What are you seeking? Now, you can interpret your own tone. I've heard some people say, Jesus sees these guys coming and goes, hey, what do you guys want? Maybe, doesn't say. But as you read on, you get more of a sense of Jesus' hospitality than you do his directness in this, right? And what I mean by that is he says, what are you seeking? And they just said to him, Rabbi. So these two guys, you just, you just wonder what, what, what they did when they, their rabbi tells them that this is the real rabbi, the son of God. Now they, he looks and he talks to them. I don't think they were ready for that. Like, he sees me. He's actually talking to me right now. You know, it's that weird um, response that we get when maybe we see a celebrity, and you might not want to admit it, but you're, like, Twitter-pated. You know, you're like, that's so-and-so from that movie. You know, and, you, and they look, oh, hey, what's up? You're like, oh, you said what's up, right? Like, you know, you, you like, don't expect them to have words or, or, or to, like, pulse or anything like that. They're a person on a screen. But Jesus acknowledges them, says, hey, what are you guys seeking? And their response was rabbi. I wonder if they're like, why'd you say rabbi, dude? You should have told him. Like, or, or, or if they were just like teacher. And maybe the way that they were acknowledging, you 
are the one with real truth. You are the way, the truth, and life. I, I, I want to sit under your teaching. And Jesus responds to their response with, um, okay, they say rabbi, and then he says to them, oh, they say to him, excuse me, in a follow-up, where are you staying, right? Again, maybe one says rabbi, like the guy kicks him and says, why would you say rabbi? And he goes, oh, I got a better one. Where are you staying? Dude, why are you asking him where he's staying? I have no idea. <laughs> Rabbi, where are you staying? And here's Jesus' response. Come and you will see. And so they came and saw where he was staying. And they stayed with him that day. For it was about the 10th hour. I don't want to read too much into this. But I do think it's important to read a, a, a dialogue and, and not a directive. Jesus was asking some open-ended questions. He, he was responding to their questions. And what I took away from this time is Jesus' tremendous hospitality. Jesus does not seem like he's in a hurry. He doesn't seem like he wants to test them and make sure that they're ready to follow him. Do you know what you're getting? He, he does some of that as it gets a little deeper. He just says, hey, come, come and see. Come along. There's certain people who are gifted with such hospitality that you just know you could show up at their house anytime. You know that you could talk to them anytime. It's just such a, you just kind of fall into that. And maybe some of you are thinking of someone that you know. Maybe it was a, a grandparent. Maybe it was a parent or a friend or just a, a person that you know. It's just like there's a, a hospitality in their conversation. Even talking to them feels like easy because they ask questions and then you give response. Don't you hate that when you're talking on the phone and you're asking a question and then your rhythm gets off and the person's talking and you're answering another question. It's just like... <laughs> it's not like that. It just flows. Jesus is portrayed to me, at least here, like that. Like, so hospitable. So, like, come. Check this out. Come and, come and you will see. That theme of, of seeing plays out. And I'm going to run out of time. I'm just looking at the clock. Sorry, I keep going. Um, it says, and so they said, come and see where, um, where he was staying. And they stayed with him that day. And it was about the 10th hour. And one of the two um, who heard John speak and followed, was, uh, followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And he first found his own brother. And he said to him, we have found the Messiah. And if you've seen the chosen, you know this is true. Just kidding. <laughs> no. Whatever you think about The Chosen, I think it's beautiful how it helps open our imagination to real characters in a real time. And so he, he, he says, um, come and see. We have found the Messiah. And verse 42 says, he brought him to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. He tells him, you're, you're, basically, he, he, he names him what he's going to become, a rock, someone of stability, a, a true leader in the church. Man, uh, there's so much more to say, but the application is, um, again, Jesus' conversational hospitality. And I'm wondering for us, as we're listening to some of this, is there some areas for us to grow in that area? In other words, is our relationships with other, are our relationships with other people transactional? Do we already know what we need before we ask? Is the motive of our conversation like, hey, man, how are you doing? Okay, like, blah, blah, like, what you're hearing is blah, blah, blah. There used to be a cartoon called Charlie Brown. Maybe you heard of it. And Charlie Brown had a teacher. And when the teacher talked, what did everybody hear? Wah, 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 wah. So is there an area to grow in hospitality where we really care about the person that we're talking to? 
that we're not driven by what our culture says is, dude, you're going to be late. You know, you got to get results. You know, you have to have something to show for this. Everything needs to, you got to show something for it. What would it look like for you to just waste time with somebody just because you cared about them? Just waste time with them. I got no agenda. I have a friend. In fact, he spoke here, um, Jim. Jim's great, a missionary who talked about his friends from all over the world. It was just like all over the place. You remember him, YWAM missionary? Jim will reach out and say, hey, let's get coffee if he's in town. You don't even know he's in town. Let's get coffee. He always says, let's get coffee. No agenda. And and the cynical Gen Xer is like, well, that guy clearly has an agenda because he said no agenda. (laughs) But, But I've learned over the years he has no agenda. He just wants to waste time with me. What's God doing? What's going on? Man, that's awesome. There's a place for that, and Jesus models it. Conversational hospitality. Let's, let's wrap it up. I'm, I have three minutes. John uh, 1, uh, verse 43. He says, the next day, Jesus decided, I like that he decided to do something because he's a human. He's fully God and fully man, and he makes a decision to go to Galilee. And he found Philip, and he said to him, follow me. And Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found um, him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said these famous words, can anything good come from, fill in your favorite hick town. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And look at what Philip does. Philip, a now follower of Jesus, starts to sound just like Jesus. What does he say? Come and see. It's an invitation. It's, it's not closing a deal. It's not, you got to be closing, man. Give the gospel and make sure you close. Make sure that you get a commitment. If you don't get a commitment, you're just wasting your breath. Man, I wonder if we had the, the conversational hospitality to know that Jesus is much bigger than we are with a plan for people's lives, if we might be a whole lot better at getting someone from A to B sometimes than going all the way from A to Z and going, man, we sealed it. I got me a salvation today. <laughs> yes, we're to be witnesses, but we're to be witnesses that are just like the one that we follow. Is this stuff making any sense? So, so he goes and, and he says, come, come and see. In verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him, and I love this. He said, and behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Translation, Nathanael, a straight shooter, a guy who makes fun of my hometown. How you doing? (laughs) Conversational hospitality. You care enough about the person to, to see the good before you're like, what a jerk. You making fun of Nazareth? Yeah. No, he's like, look at man, a straight shooter. I love a straight shooter. Nathaniel said to him, how do you know me? And, and I am again interpreting tone, but I for sure think he had some like, sup? Like, how do you know me? You know, Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, I saw you were under the fig tree and I saw you. You see these themes of see? I wish we had more time to understand that a little bit more. Come and see. I saw you. Come and see. And Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. What a quick flip. What a quick flip from like, 
who, who comes from Nazareth to like, whoa. And then Jesus just lovingly calls him out and says, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree that you believe. Oh, you're going to see, see that theme? You're going to see greater things than these. And then last and final verse of the chapter, he says, and he said to him, truly, truly, listen up. This is very true. He says, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. If I could ask the worship team to come, I want to I wanna just end with an application. And I feel like giving that space in a, with a worship song helps us to do that before we go outside of these walls. Remember what we said about this. Just like synagogues were a place of worship and prayer, this sanctuary is special, devoted to just doing what we're doing. And I can think of a million and one sermons because I was a good church kid. And, I, and listening to some that I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Never Pastor John, but, but other people. Never Pastor John. Never Noel either. Only guest speakers. So, <laughs> it's true. And I, and I remember sometimes just being so gripped and just going, when I get out of here, I'm going to really think about that. I remember being so gripped and just going, I got to do something about that in my life as soon as I leave. What happens when you exit and you cross the threshold outside of the sanctuary into the world that moves fast, that has a culture all of its own, can be easily distracted? That's why it's important to stop and ponder, to just come and see, to, to dive in a little deeper. And so in terms of application, I think a few questions, and I have them up on the screen for us just to reflect on. Number one, who are you? Again, don't be annoyed by that question. If, I was, if it was being posed to me, I might have the tendency to be a little annoyed by it. But, but who are you? Not just in the philosophical sense, not just what are your hopes and dreams, but at the core. How are you seen? How are you known? And I think the heart of that question is just much like Pastor Scott challenged us in the beginning of the service, is it just an honest space between you and God. And that might be as far as you're going to get today as we, as we apply this word. And secondly, Jesus' words, what do you seek? What do you seek? I think that we, we should all be good Sunday school students and say, Jesus, right? The answer to every one of these. But within our seeking of Jesus, what do we seek? Or do, do we seek, is it possible? Maybe we seek a little bit of recognition, I wish if people in there would see my gift. I wish people in there would, you know, let me serve because I'm called to do this. The, the, the body of Christ should flourish with that. I'm not saying that that's wrong, but I'm saying that what I see of John, John sought to glorify Jesus in every opportunity he had. And if there was someone who could do it better than him, go with him, right? What do, what do we seek and that, that can be an open-ended question that not only fits within the example that I just gave. The third, so two questions and two invitations. Two questions, who, who are you and what do you seek? Come and see. Come and see. When you begin to answer some of those questions and you're vulnerable enough before God to, to be seen by, your, by him, to allow him into every facet of your life, you enter into an adventure that he wants to walk with you. He doesn't give you every turn. How many of you would just love for God to tell you what you need him to tell you at the time you want him to tell it to you? Yes. He never does. 
because he, he is leading us, right? He's gracious, and he's not that he isn't giving, he isn't telling, he's giving us peace instead of all the information we need because we're so drunk for information. We just need to know. He just wants to be with us. He's hospitable. So come and see. And then the last and the final is the invitation to follow him. You can unbundle all the other stuff and get down to that basic truth. He, he loves you, desires relationship with you. He made the way for it to happen. And he invites you to come and follow him. It's the beginning. And so uh, there's that great song that we often sing, this, um, this reckless love of God. I can't think of a better song than that. That was a cue. See, look, he's changing the <laughs> thing. Can we stand together and, and um, we just dim our lights just to be able to have a little quiet space to think about some of those questions? If you don't mind, um, Lord, we just welcome you to help us to apply so much truth that's left for us, truth of who you are, not only who the gospel writer says you are, but who an eyewitness says you are as a credible person because your cousin. I mean, help us, Lord, to process through this great love that you have for us and to respond appropriately to it.
want to speak this into you as you're, you're reflecting on that song and you're reminded of God's unfailing, amazing love. And when you're asked the question who you are, that you are called of God, that you're loved by God, that you're known by God, that you're valued by God, that God loves you so much that he sends Jesus into this world so that he can have relationship with you eternally that you could put yourself in the seat of those disciples and, and Jesus loves you so much that he engages in conversation with you, drawing you to a place where you can be more like him as the great teacher who is the son of God, who is the lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. May you just be filled with the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit and the security of knowing that you are loved by God. And if you're a personality that's like, yeah, that's all true, but God demands from us righteous living. He, 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 he fulfills that demand through Jesus' sacrifice, but he calls us into holy living, and that is true. And that is the, 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 the security that we have becomes the springboard into our righteous living. But, but at this moment, we got to unbundle for a moment and, and receive the fullness of how he sees you, how he loves you, how he knows you. And that compels you to change, just like we read Nathaniel, who maybe was a little cynical in the beginning, but proclaims, you're you're the one. But we believe you, we honor you, we love you. We receive the invitation that you give us and we want to respond with, yes, I want to follow you. Bless your people today, Lord. Help them throughout the week, throughout their days, throughout their times of studying your word and being with you to unbundle some things that are more cultural than they are biblical, to waste time with you and with others, and to hear your voice and to know it and to walk in obedience to you. So bless your people now, and I thank you for this time together. We love you and we honor you. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Amen. Thank you.
the prayer.